Hey, Vanessa. Hi, Dom. How exhausted are you? Very. And uh, a little a little under-caffeinated. Vanessa and I just shared the, the litany of small <laughs> mistakes we've committed in the past month. Inclu- one of these mistakes, including leaving a laptop in an airport. Super fun. Super fun. 24 hours there. And accordingly, we apologize for the delay. Uh, we try to publish fortnightly, but sometimes, well, life. But anyway, this is a fun one. We, we, we have today... Nancy Rommelman, a fantastic journalist, whom we actually recorded for a change in person and not by Zoom. She came to our house. Our, our studio, you mean. Yeah. Nancy is uh, an author and a reporter, journalist who's been writing for all the outlets, but recently, especially for Reason, where she's been really doing extraordinary work reporting on the riots in Portland, Oregon. Her coverage of what's been going on there isn't just more rich in detail and character and, and honesty than, than, than most else that's been written about it. It also gives a profound view into the experience and world of the protest addicts, I guess. People who have wrapped their, their, their day-to-day meaning with ideologically fervent, often shallow but very much destructive political activism. In fact, it's a type of activism in which the destruction is the main point. So we talk about this. We obviously talk about our thoughts regarding the state of media. It's unsurprising. But to be fair, the failure of information and sense-making institutions is one of the main issues for certain things. And we finally got to talk about something that's been on my mind for a while, and i say it was only an uh, uh, opening salvo into the topic, but the question of beauty and beauty as a, a social force and a commodity. It's something that Nancy and I have discussed in one of our first, I think possibly the first time we've met, and, and it was wonderful to, to be able to have that conversation online and at least start it i i I would definitely love to go further into it and we also got to talk a little bit about rami's new uh, media company which is paloma media it's with matt welch right i think so matt welch who we we had on and their underlying principle is not dissimilar to uncertain things i guess cover the shit you care about and nothing else uh and if you want to see what Paloma Media cares about, go and follow them immediately. And really, it's just it's just a reminder that every once in a while, the internet is an awesome thing. <laughs> yes. It, it gets tempting to sometimes uh, uh, lean into your inner Luddite. And moments like this are basically a, a reminder of... Maybe shut up, Adam. Don't don't burn the textile machines quite yet. Not 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 yet. Yeah. Every now and then you're reminded like, oh, yes, when you can find things that otherwise would never have gotten an outlet. It's good to have these technologies that make that possible. So just before we go in, we originally recorded a 20 minute long or such introduction to also respond to Jacob Siegel's response to our uh, podcast with him which he wrote beautifully about on on his um 
newsletter, The Scroll, which he publishes for Tablet Magazine. And I recommend everyone to subscribe to it because Jacob's writing is uh, phenomenal. So if you listen to that episode, um, Escaping the Gospel of Guilt, you might remember that at the beginning, Jacob and I got into a, a small sidebar debate about, uh, I guess, natalism. Jacob chafed at my remark that I think there needs to be a, a, a high bar held by a person who is going to commit to having a child internally, personally. Uh, but, 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 but that there needs to be some sort of personal threshold. Jacob thought I'm being ridiculous and a, a victim of the narcissism of, I guess, the hyper-liberal, hyper-individualistic mindset. And following the episode, he further honed his perspective on, on the issue in a, in a post titled, You're So Vain, You Probably Think This Kid Is About You. I, I really recommend reading Jacob's post. His response is touching, even though I still disagree on some fundamental points. And I will publish the response we recorded either in the next podcast or as a standalone episode. But I wanted to make sure to finish editing this episode today so it comes out on Rami's birthday. Happy birthday. And as far as Jacob goes, listen to the original debate, read Jacob's post, and to be continued. And for now, welcome to Uncertain Things, the pod of belated and belabored introductions. We're uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a moment, please give us five-star review on Apple Podcasts because this really helps. And, and if you really want to support us, uh, you can drop a few schmeckles in the <laughs> uncertain.substack.com paid subscription um, section, which we will also start creating some, some, some maybe like special content articles every once in a while. But yes. mostly we want to keep things free. So it's really mostly about supporting our work and, and helping us make more in less time but only if you can and only if you want and that's it with All that right. nancy yes lord knows just in case that's a good that's the name of this podcast right so we are so we've been you have first of all i have a thing i have a thing i'm up to cool. that's, thing that's a good way to start that's good I, I will like not be able to I'll be like trying to answer <laughs> questions but i'll be staring at the thing in your thing tooth in the whole tooth this whole time let me no yeah, we don't need Vanessa. What's, yeah, what's you, happening? You, you gave me post-credit content. Hey, Zev. <laughs> Last time that Zev showed up in the middle of a podcast, yes. I, I used it in the podcast, and yes. he took offense. <laughs> but no, you can be like a recurring character. Like I, that's once every that's, five was, or I was six. Establishing a, yeah, you were... Yeah. His, his presence was already alluded to in previous episodes, and when he suddenly actually showed up in the background, <laughs> it, was, it was great. Hi, hi, Nancy. Hi, Rami. Hi. That's right. You, you, I, you know what? No one has ever called me that, but a friend of my dad's used to call my dad that. Used to call him Rami. I've never... Somebody needed to carry that tradition. Yeah, there we go. So, uh, Is that a common thing in like, calling people Rami? No. no. I, the, the first time I met Nancy, I already have read her work. I, I knew who she was, but it was the thought that was ringing in my head was... My God, I wish to reach a point in our relationship where I can call you Rami. <laughs> so he just started out. He's like, why not just start with that? No, it's I, all manifested. It, it. I will say, so Rommelman is my last name. I do have four or five people, all men, that call me Rommelman. Hey, Rommelman. Yeah, 
I like it. Nobody, it's all good. Nobody felt lazy never. enough to shorten it. Oh my never. god, those fucking never. millennials. Yeah. <laughs> um. So first, before we dig into things that are maybe more interesting, I, I do want to <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe I don't know. It's a high party. I, I want to address the 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 pink elephant in the room. I'm the oh. only person drinking. Oh well, I'm having. A, what did we say? I'm having a blueberry. Basil tea made by the people by of, the Nazis. By the of, what do you say of Germany? They're trying to make up for right, right, Nazism. Right. That's, that's from the people who brought you the Holocaust. That's right. The, this the, the mint basil. basil, fancy teas. They're like maybe if we make this tea, people will forgive and forget. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so how's it going we so tried, far? We did reparations. <laughs> I'm feeling much better about the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Covered reparations. What 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 next? <laughs> um, but yeah, but it's it's a shame nobody nobody is drinking with me. What? No, I'm sorry. Maybe later. Maybe. I'm having yeah. a cranberry juice. For sure. Well, we'll uh, yeah, I'll, I'll hold my resentments, my grudges. Um, so Nancy, Vanessa wanted to start uh, like professionals by hearing about your illustrious career. Oh, well, like in 30 seconds or less? Uh, uh, up, to, up to 90 seconds. Up to 90 seconds. I am a journalist and an author. I have been a journalist since 1994. My first uh, feature article, which was about my fourth article in general, which driving across the country to interview John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer on death row with a pen pal of his. It got a lot of play and sort of kind of got me a career. I lived in L.A. at the time, wrote for all the L.A. publications, was a nightlife columnist, feature writer, um, started writing books um, and have been writing. That's all I do. Um, I've written, I don't know, five or six books. The last one was like the book I think I was um, waiting my whole life to write or had it in me to write, which was called uh, To the Bridge, A True Story of Motherhood and Murder, about a woman in 2009 who went to a bridge in Portland, Oregon, where I was living at the time and threw her two young children off the bridge. Her four-year-old drowned, her seven-year-old daughter survived, and I really took a very deep dive, no pun, I'm sorry, um, into how this happens, um, you know, sort of if you made a concentric circle from the people in the middle and then the the people investigated and then the community and why we think about these things. So it's it's definitely not a lurid book. Um, I'm, I took a long time to write it. I'm glad with that book. I've written for uh, the Wall Street Journal, LA Times, New York Times. I write currently, I've been writing a lot for Reason Magazine, including covering the protests in Portland all last summer and fall. And into this year, I just actually got back again. I've written 24 stories on the whole uh, stuff out there, most on Reason, but also for The Dispatch and most recently for Persuasion. And currently I am starting a new little media company called Paloma Media. We already have a YouTube channel. It's about a hundred or so videos up there. We've got a podcast. Um, You can go to any one of your podcatchers and find Paloma Media. And we will be launching the website in about a month. So Ooh. that's it. So much gumshoe. So much. It, <laughs> Just it, spilled, it, it, filled that part. It's, it's, you know, a lot of it is shoe leather reporting, meaning, you know, you would go out. I was raised understanding that you go out and find stories, right? You go and talk to people. You go to the bar. You talk to the cops. You do all this. And I guess, you know, we obviously still have this kind of reporting. But I think less. Then there used to be, I want, like, I, I want to talk to everybody, like every single person, you know, the barber, the criminal, the, the, the woman that made the donut. That's, I, I just want to talk to everybody and try to understand uh, stories the way that they're also understanding them and then, and, and, and hopefully bring them to people in a way that they appreciate being able to jump onto a bunch of different uh, landing points for the story. 
Is that what took you to Portland because of all the characters? There? Well, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I moved to Portland. No, but before oh, we actually sure. go into the serious conversation. Yeah. As you were giving the 90 second pitch, yeah. you reverted into the same tone that I have whenever I'm, I'm finding myself in the awkward position of interviewing for a job. Do you, do you feel that, that when you're giving your, your elevator bio that you, you're regressing to a you trying to get a job or is it just uh, like an autopilot? I know I, I, there's just, you know, I've been writing now, it's like 27 years. Like, what do you, you know, what's a highlight? What's not a highlight? Uh -huh. Like, what were the, you know, the dead points? What were the points that really made me like weep or I think had a story that had an impact? Like I could tell you some stories I wrote for 15 years for the LA Weekly when it was like a really, really tight, awesome paper where they gave you, you know, hi, oh, Nancy, you're hanging out at this like old man, you know, single room occupancy hotel in uh, in LA, which I was with a friend of mine who lived down there. And I'm happy to mention it to my editor. She's like, give me 8,000 words on King Eddie's, like literally would pay you. And they paid well, like you, you know, you made money to sit in a bar for six months and talk to people about their hardships and the lies that they told you. And the woman with the voice box was like, you know, trying to pick up your husband. I mean, just like, you know, like these kinds of slices of life, like this is a story that I think was kind of meaningful. So, but how do I say that in my 90 second yeah. elevator pitch, right? Um, so no, I don't, I don't think I really am trying to, I'm kind of lucky right now in that um, at least some places that places that I like and respect, they want me to write for them. Not that I'm writing like all the time and big things all the time because my stories tend to take a while. You know, I don't, um, I have like so much admiration. you do that thing called reporting. Well, yeah, but, but you know what? Like, let me give you an example. Like this other thing happened today. This other, like, you know, apparently like Karen in a park yelling at someone with the dog and, you know, everybody's got a hot take. Well, How about having a, a fast take that's not hot? Like being able to be the kind of reporter where you spend a couple of hours really looking around, trying to get some source stuff, being really calm about it. Oh, who's that? That's Robbie Suave over at Reason, who within, you know, a couple of hours of this happening, gives a really super balanced story where he brings in voices and he puts in links. I don't know how to do that. Like, I mean, I can occasionally, like sometimes some story will hit and I'm just like, Bam, I got to write this right now and do that. But there are people that can do this like every single day. And I, because I don't do that, I have so much admiration for this. Whereas right. I know they feel like, oh my God, how did you write that 8,000 word story about, you know, the girl with the broken leg? Like, I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, um, but anyway, no, I don't think I am pitching myself, but maybe I am. <laughs> Editors, maybe I am. Uh, I know. Because <laughs> recently I just, I, I We, Vanessa and I were invited to a, to a nice podcast. Uh, the Adventure Creator Podcast. When he asked us about ourselves, I, I found myself automatically going into that place of like, this is what I am. And then I, my tone, I noticed, was shifting into the self-pitching uh, place. And it really depressed me later on listening to it. But, it's, but now I'm just projecting. Yeah, but we all have our, like, our stock speech that we've said a million times, our stories that we tell. And so therefore we have a, a cadence that is repeated. Right, so right, right, I, right. I think it's just human nature you know i remember this no, i just brought my self-loathing to bear in this conversation <laughs> um when i was still living in la i moved from la in 2004 i do remember hearing myself doing that occasionally like at big editorial places i'd be at parties or i'd be talking to one of my editors and i would hear myself doing that somehow like kind of shining my own little star and i hated it every time i'd go home and go like why did you do that so i don't think i, I think i think it finally gets like bread out of you at a certain point. If you're American. 
Okay. So, back to serious stuff. To Portland. So, I mean, it sounds like you've lived in a bunch of different American cities then. I have lived in uh, New York City, where I'm from. I've lived in LA, and I lived in Portland, and now I'm back in New York since uh, end of 2019. Um, I was in Portland living there, and um, I was reporting there. Though Portland's a very tough uh, town to report from. There's there's very little media. I mean, I like I wrote for everybody. I wrote for the city magazines. I wrote for the Alt Weekly, and I kept writing for national places, but it's not like New York. I mean, like you just don't have any kind of media community. You have like a big fiction writing community, so that's good for that kind of writing. Um, but I happened to be there when that story hit, and I spent a long, long time on it. But oh, sorry, in terms of the book, but in terms of the reporting for uh, the protests, I already was not living there. I was already here. I'm, I'm good. I'm about to tell a story that I've told like seven other times, and I apologize, but it is actually truly how I came to report on the story in Portland. We knew what was happening with George Floyd. I mean, I was here in the city. I was sometimes like running around after people writing short things about protests, watching kids like smash up cop cars. And it was the beginning of July and I was sitting in Matt Welch from Reason Magazine and-, and um, Who we had on. What? Who we had on the podcast oh, you previously. Did. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Jake Siegel from Tablet. And- Who was in our upcoming episode, okay. actually. Okay. <laughs> so we were, it was just the three of us sitting in Matt's yard having cocktails and uh, Which Jake, we also had on our podcast. <laughs> Jake said to me, Nancy, what the fuck is going on in Portland? <laughs> and right, okay. And then Matt looked at me and said, You gotta go. So I got up the next morning and I texted Catherine Mangu Ward, is editor in chief of Reason, who I've written for many times. I'm close with those people. I love those people. And I said, I want to go to Portland for you. She said, Go. So I went, I got on a plane that day and filed five stories in four days mm-hmm. or a week or something like that, came back. Went back again in August, came back, went back again in September, though didn't file then because um, it was the wildfires and it was, there was nobody on the street. It's the only time in the hundred, you know, they call it like the hundred days of nonstop protest. Um, it, they, they like literally, it was so gross. It was weird. It was like- did they, did they feel like copyright infringement that somebody else was putting things on fire? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I went back. I went back in um, late October, early November. I was there during the election, and then afterwards, when there was still a lot of violence, I went back again in January. Um, not again. I, I think the last piece. Then I wrote a big feature for Reason. Oh, here I am, self-promoting in the May issue of uh, Reason about about what happened. But um, Reason, I love Reason because they never ask you to report in any particular way. They want you to bring them the story, and you know it is a. a technically a libertarian publication or not even technically it is a libertarian publication i am libertarian adjacent i don't have claim any particular affiliation um but they want you to tell the story straight and Mm. they don't you know nobody ever once has said to me well you know could you like maybe it's like no and that i just felt very very um fortunate because one of the reasons in that in the yard that day is that you know if jake and Matt cannot figure out, these are two of like the best news people going. If they can't figure out what the fuck is going on in Portland, we have an issue, right? And the issue is, you know, you've got the the reporter in Kenosha standing in front of this absolute conflagration saying, well, it's really mostly peaceful. And then you have Fox on the other side saying, you better watch it because tomorrow they're going to be burning down your house. Neither of these things 
is true and then there's weird little bits of truth. So why not get into the streets and actually see what's going on and actually report it, which of course, as you may know, and I know you do know, was not super popular um, because I was telling you who was doing what, and this was not popular with the uh, with the kind of main message that was getting through in most of the media, which is you have to allow people to peaceful protest and um, and clickety click click click. I don't. Um, so, you know, I was like, sure, of course you do have to let them peaceful protest. But what about these 200 to 600 people every night that are burning things down? And I think there was this sense that if you said one bad thing about anybody that claimed to be, you know, there for George Floyd or there for BLM or there as anti-police, if you said one bad thing, then you were tarring the entire movement. I'm like, this is, this is this is so juvenile. Look, open your eyes. How does it hurt you to say there are different grades of what's going on here? So I was fortunate um, that Reason wanted those those grades. So that's Portland. That's a dumb with a pencil in his mouth. Ar, ar, so ar, ar. I realized recently that I cannot trust my own memory to retain the questions that I want to ask. So I just have to take notes. No, it's just I wanted to put it on the record that I'm, I'm going senile. And first and foremost... Your imitation of Jake is almost impeccable, but the but way too fast talking. Oh, so it should be Nazi. What the fuck is going on in Portland? Yeah, and but that oh, wasn't very good. That wasn't good. He's got a. He's like growly but sexy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I can't. I don't. I don't think I have, to have the right. It's sex growly, skill. sexy with long pauses. Okay. Yeah. Now, Dom right. knows from having edited it recently. Okay. Got it. Got it. Actually, before getting to my actual question, can you give us an example of one of the events that you covered in, in Portland that for you really like struck home? Well, it was very easy actually, because, um, when I got there, the federal building, Trump had sent in the federal forces to protect the federal building. Um, and it had been already the building next door to the federal building, which is the police station had already been being, you know, molested nightly since two days after George Floyd was killed, including, um, you know, you had 10,000 people, something like that, march over one of the main bridges. And then, you know, they were mostly peaceful. Uh, yes. And then when those folks dispersed, the 200 or 100, however many were that stayed, I was not here when this happened. That was in May. I mean, I wasn't in Portland when it happened. Um, they broke into the police station, which is also like, they call it justice center. There's also a courthouse and they check in prisoners underneath and they set fire, they broke the windows, they smashed all the office furniture. Meanwhile, in the basement was were police employees checking in prisoners. And it, there was a fire on top of them. And they literally have their families calling them and saying, get the fuck out of the building, it's on fire. And they can hear what's going on upstairs, but they're like basically barricaded in. Some Actually, some of, uh, not that night, but another police station the protesters barricaded the police inside the building, some of the employees, and started setting it on fire. So when I got there, I mean, Justice Center, the police station, was already like fencing and molested and graffitied and all this. And and the federal building was like surrounded by fences. And there were just thousands of people screaming. And I mean, you're what? Thousands of people screaming and throwing incendiary stuff at the building. Now, what happens for the first couple of hours, first of all, there's no Portland police in sight. It's very odd when these things are going on in front of the buildings. But the feds are inside, but they're not doing anything. 
for a long, long time. They kind of let it play out. Meanwhile, they're like tipping lit up barbecues. They're, if they can get past the fencing, they're smashing in the barricades and on and on and on. Then the feds start shooting out tear gas or other things, rubber bullets. So and then everybody runs away and then they go back. So I literally get there. I'm in the middle of this. So I can see exactly what's going on. I can see exactly who's molesting the building. I can see what the feds are doing. And I can also very clearly see the sort of, you know, they call it LARPing, right? Live action role playing. And um, it's very, very much in evidence. You've got the mostly girls with like medic written across somewhere on their bodies. You've got the black block guys that have like the leaf blowers or the 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 fire, you know, whatever they're shooting at the building. You've got the kids with press on their building. Literally, it just says like a big in tape on their body or on their helmet press. And I'm like, I've been, you know, reporting for 25 years and I have never had press on my body. I've carried a press pass a few times, like, like in a murder investigation or something, excuse me, a press pass that I made on my own computer. So there we go. Like not to reveal any trade secrets, but yeah. even our... Yeah, you just make it on your computer. I mean, I have, I had the Times, the New York Times give me a, a they were like, I had to go into this uh, scene where there had been a school, a school shooting but I was in Portland and I was like, I, they like, they're like, drive up, get inside, do what you need to do. I'm like, how do I get, they're like, just like, you know, print yourself up a press thing and put it, I, no, actually, I don't know if they said that, but I figured it, it out. You just, I you printed, read between the lines. I printed out something that said press on a bright orange piece of paper and stuck it in my window and the cops waved me through. <laughs> Trade secrets, kids. Anyway, um, I saw pretty quickly how this had really become sort of an identity. I mean, I'd, I'd covered Black Block and, and Antifa and Proud Boys before, so I kind of had seen the, you know, how they went out each other. And this was just on a larger scale, and the the eyes of the world were on Portland, okay? I, well, I'm actually not familiar with this live-action Live-action role role-playing basically means they're dressing up as characters and uh, going at each other. So, for instance... I've covered events where, you know, it's going to be this big, terrible thing between Antifa and the Proud Boys. And they kind of like, they kind of go up to each other and bang chest and do all this stuff. And then everybody goes home. It's like, they're almost like playing a part, you know, until it gets more violent, which sometimes it does, right? What was the name of that film? I forgot that there was a film about LARPing. Uh, I mean, I've heard it in like a comic Like a role model text. Yeah, what they called it. There's another word for it. Um, just like, you just imagine the people playing, uh, dressing up as as wizards and knights and fighting each other in the yeah, park. Yeah. Just with uh, pretension to political activism. So this was on a almost a world stage, if you think about it. I mean, we had the George Floyd protests going on over all over the world. There was no place in the world where they were as adamant about this stuff. And also because Trump had sent in federal forces than Portland. Portland had the eyes of the world on it. And I believe that the players knew this. I mean, how could they not know it? There was there was press everywhere, plus there was all the like press. So you could kind of see, and, and also I, I've written this many times, you know, you've have, these are young people for the most part. They've been quarantined inside, school has been closed. Their work is probably closed for good. And they haven't been allowed to go outside. There's been no bars. There's been no movies. There's been no music. All of a sudden, they can get out into the streets every night and save the fucking world, right? I called it, you know, their nightly spurt of relief or release. And um, they were reveling in it. 
I mean, there is no doubt. Now, they definitely liked to present themselves as beleaguered and beaten by the police. I had a young woman run up to me and say, this is a quote, um, the police are killing all our black friends in the street. And I was like, well, if you'd like to sit and talk to me, I can tell you that, in fact, at that point, there had been one police killing in Portland. It was of a white guy who was uh, had nothing to do with the protests whatsoever. But, you know, don't 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 bring the facts into this because you need to believe that you we're in a constant state of emergency and that your enemies are very clearly demarcated. They are the police. And then anybody else that conveniently could, they wear uniforms. They wear uniforms. Well, so were so were the black block kids. They're in their outfits too, right? So how did I it was very easy to see what was going on to me. Now I was, of course, you know, told I was a fascist for not completely being on the side of that we're fighting the police. Well, I I think it's very easy to call someone whatever you want to call them. They, you know, I, I know this is untrue. Um but it it very much became a like you're if you're not with us you're against us and, and it still happens I you know there was that young woman who was um, hit and knocked to the ground by a black block uh, guy in Portland about three weeks ago Marianne I can't remember her last name right now but I did communicate with her recently and um, uh, Matt Taibbi uh, wrote something about it and he's like you know um, we've we we're very much and, I, and I've said this. 40 gazillion times, you know, we're very much blaming the right for all of the violence um, that has happened, let's say in Portland, I'm not going to speak into about every incident, um, but I know from being on the ground there, I, I saw who was committing the violence every night. This does not mean there were not altercations with the right, there there was, um, but that they were not the ones committing the violence every night. I, I was there, I was there dozens and dozens of nights. Um, anyway, he, he, he wrote something about this. It's like, this is not a particularly unusual case of... Um, of Antifa or Black Bloc, you know, committing violence against somebody that they see is not on their side. I'm not saying it's endemic, but it happens. And to say that it never happens is is wrong. And so I, I wrote something about this. I actually got pretty hot under the collar about it. And I, I can't read all the comments, but there were probably about 4,000 comments of people coming at me saying that, you know, I was a fascist for, for saying that. And it's like, well, you know, the, you... To cleave to that line, I don't know how it helps them. I don't know how it helps their movement, or even if they're very invested in 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 the movement. And I don't think actually, I don't actually think people are. I think um, what's happening in terms of uh, Antifa and all these fights, I think it's kind of dying down. I've written about this a bit um, for a lot of reasons. You know, school is open again, <laughs> and people have jobs, and um, also people life is coming back. Life is coming back, but not only that. It's like you know. To, to to say this is the identity that I am going to pledge to, people have like other things to do. Um, they may believe in the goals. And I think the goals, if you look at them in a, in a simplified way, are, are in many ways correct. Of course, we want, we, I don't want to abolish the police. I don't think most people do. You want police reform? Sure. So do cops. You know, do you want um, equality? Do you want, um, you know, better opportunities for everybody? Of course you do. But- the ways that they want to go about it, which is burning everything down, and I, I've said this again 50 billion times, these movements, especially in Portland, as we've seen, are incredibly good at breaking things. They're very, very good at that because that's very easy. Um, but I have not yet seen them build a goddamn thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For, for these people that are uh, writing comments to you on Twitter, um, I mean, obviously they're lodging... <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, attacks calling you a fascist. But I'm curious if you think it's it's because they just cannot believe that the reality that you're purporting to see is actually not, it can't be true. Because I'm thinking from our conversation with like Congressman Meyer and he was like there at the day that the that the the capital was in, was invaded by protesters or however we want to what's I don't know what the right terminology is but let's just whatever it is it happened and he there and he saw he saw he was there and he saw it with larpers. his own eyes huh insurrection larp okay he saw the insurrectionists <laughs> enter the building and and the next day he had to talk to constituents that were telling him like that's not how it happened and he had to say well well no I was there I observed it with my my own eyes I I know what happened um, and so I'm just curious if. If, 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 if there's like a similar thing happening here where it's just like they can't accept that that's the reality you're seeing is the reality and therefore you must be X, Y, Z. Like a total made. epistemic bifurcation. Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, I adore Peter Meyer. He knows that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that they're invested in the idea that they're the good guys um, because they can point to certain instances that have been terrible, like the killing of, of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor. And so they believe these things are wrong, which they are, which we all believe. And so they've created what they believe to be a solution or a fighting back. Um, I don't think that they are, I don't, I don't think that they've achieved anything. I don't think that a solution or an ideology um, built on tearing things down is ever going to build anything um, holistically good for all. Mm -hmm. I think also it's just, you know, I, I don't know how old these people are that are, are yelling at me, but a lot of them are like stupid memes or <laughs> just literally one word. Like I had something, my I guess in my first comment was, you know, if, if who the fuck was committing the violence every night in Portland? And, and because, you know, they were, let me, let me back up. I was saying, I had seen basically people on the left doing this every night. And I was like, if you were saying it's not, if you're saying that is not true, that what I saw with my own eyes and filmed, I have a video of a guy smashing in the federal building with a, um, a fire extinguisher and people around him, yeah, screaming, yeah, yeah, like just delighted. And one of the comments I got when I posted it last summer was, I can see that Nancy Rommelman staged this in a studio. And you know how I can tell from the shine on one of the person's helmets. Yeah, I'm like. So. The, I, the flag on the moon wasn't yeah, flapping. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The flag on the moon wasn't flapping. Um, I said. Oh, it was flapping. Sorry. Right, right. Got my uh, conspiracies mixed up. I was up. like, if, you know, I saw this, I, I know that this is true. And if you're telling me it's not, then who the fuck committed that violence every night? And I must have had, I again, I couldn't read all the comments. I didn't but I saw at least a hundred of them that said the police. And I was like, so the police were burning down their own stations every night. That that's who, I mean, and it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's very juvenile actually mm. um, to not want to even take the time uh, to investigate what you're talking about. So, but you bring, you bring something that I really wanted to get into. There's conflation of the, Twitterati uh, knee-jerk reactions, which is which is this, and most of the people who bother to comment on Twitter are probably suffering from some new psychological virus, so some pathology that we haven't adequately diagnosed yet. Something 
like it gives them the space to assert and validate themselves in a world that is growing increasingly harsh and lonely and too complex and disparate that they don't have a cultural or psychological anchor with which to establish a sense of self and belonging and identity. So instead, they find social purpose and direction in being frenetic and relentless on Twitter. The, the more angry and, and binary they are, the more they feel that they're playing this um, version of themselves as heroes in their pathetic little tale. But while this is a profound problem because it, it, you know, it influences corporations, it influences, um, it even influences the emotional state of the people getting these attacks because you're bombarded by, by thousands and thousands of assholes. But this still doesn't explain why the people in the, um, you know, pick your cliche, the gatekeepers, the, the old establishment media, um, the at CNN and the New York Times and, and the people of re supposed respectability buy into that and, and go with it and do not have, have abdicated their sense of skepticism. That's what's so disturbing because like, get angry at all the, the idiots on Twitter. That's one thing. But come on, like people who's, you know, who supposedly share job titles like us, uh, similar to ours have just taken the, you know, certain orthodoxies for granted, and those orthodoxies conflict with the possibility of maybe the left has burnt up a building, or maybe, maybe those kids are just vand vandalists, like bored kids who are looking for an excuse to have some fun, and not you know, the face of any moral and socially meaningful protest. Or, or it's opposite. These are absolute 100% savages and throw all these kids in jail, right? Because that was what the other side right, was right, right, saying, right? right? Yeah. I think part of it... I, and I think the reason that we keep dwelling on the left is because we just expect more. Like, we know... Yeah. We, I, I mean, for me, at least, I, I, when I see the Tucker Carlson giving, giving it his worst, I'm like... I'm not surprised. And sometimes sometimes there is almost a bigotry of low expectation when whenever Tower Carlson says something incisive, there's like, oh, yes, such a, a voice of yeah. intellect and bravery on the right. It's no, it's because of the low expectations from Fox. It's the New York Times that you expect to be stable and, and take itself seriously, take, take its responsibilities to tell the truth and, you know, eschew anarchy. I think, I think that... There's a couple of issues going on at the Times, but uh, I'll take the one that I've I've written about before. Um, when when Trump was up for election, there were certain places in the country that got extremely excited, and there were other places that it was just complete hair on fire and terror that he was going to be elected. And I think Portland, you know, really is is one of those cities. And they almost, they sort of, I think it voted, I can't remember, like 75 or 80% for Hillary Clinton, overwhelmingly. And I think when he was elected, you know, Trump was also, was just, you know, sort of an exceptional provocateur. And he found an incredibly receptive city to provoke in Portland. Mm -hmm. And they all fell into this sort of communal fever, anti-Trump fever. And so they did everything. They marched, they marched, they marched, they did this, they did that. And they also, they gained an identity. So did the mayor. You know, he was going to be the one that was going to go up against Trump and I'm not going to do what you say. And I think there was a little bit of 
the enemy of the enemy is my friend. I always took the mare to just be the pusillanimous panderer. Well, it's interesting because I knew someone who I who I quoted anonymously in the Reason piece who had been in city government. And he's like, you know, Ted Wheeler is actually a smart guy. Um, but, and this is my my words now, he painted himself into a corner. You know, the enemy of the enemy is my is my friend. So Trump was the enemy. So who, of course, the peaceful protesters and your constituents are your friends. And so if there are some of these yahoos here, we're going to protect them because Trump is attacking them. And it became this, you know, so he kept trying to also appease them. You also have an incredibly, I'm just using Portland as an example. We'll get back to the times in a second. This incredibly progressive city council who, you know, they wanted people to not have to be able to pay rent and they wanted them to not be arrested. It was just, it just kind of went on and on until the 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 more violent protesters just started to sort of gain more, if not legitimacy in the city, um, they were excused. And so they were able to do more. It's like if you, you guys are not parents, but if you have a child and, you know, she breaks one cup and you don't do anything, she's like, well, let me see, let's see what happens if I break <laughs> seven cups, okay? And that's what they were doing and to a certain extent are still doing, though, and I've said this before, I, I grow concerned that as the movement shrinks, and it has, it also becomes more concentrated and perhaps more dangerous. Because who stays, okay? Who stays when the people that have jobs and love affairs and they want to go out to the concerts, who stays? You get the true believers. The believe, people who don't. The true believers, the loners, the, the people that want to make a splash, uh, and um, that that concerns me. It's like, well, you know, we don't have the status or the stature we once did. I'll make us all, I, I know how to fix that. Let me just say that you just made me imagine Ted Wheeler as Cersei from Game of Thrones calling in the faith militant into the Red Keep. Yes, yes, actually to a certain extent. So who who is he going to die down in the, uh, in the, in the cave with, right? You know? Um, <laughs> In whose arms? Uh, yes, in whose arms shall Ted Wheeler die? <laughs> um, so the Times, you know, the Times has done some great reporting and they still continue to do some great reporting. But they definitely were erring on the side. Of, they were anti-Trump. If you're anti-Trump, how do you become anti-Trump? Trump, that bastard sends the feds in and also be, you know, can you believe those kids attacking the no, federal but, building? But, but that's not just, just, it's not a satisfying answer it's for me. The, I know. I, 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 I was, at that point, I was no longer at CNN, but I was working at CNN during the first half of the Trump administration. And it's, it's more than that because, and you're right. And we always make sure to state that the, the, the times and all those institutions, they still do some great work. They're, they're huge establishments, not, uh, when they, whenever they get painted as just the the peddlers of woke ideology, it's nonsense. The, sure. The problem isn't that they are completely captured. The problem isn't that they have fully turned themselves into the OAN of the left. <laughs> but they are. They're, Sorry. <laughs> but that the the people that you just expect more of are are are, are dropping the ball in such crucial moments and a, a time like. Uh, a protest like this, which is such a moment of, you know, social hazard, you'd expect some somebody in 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 charge to be an adult 
and talk about it seriously. And, and it's not, not just about the, the coverage of Portland. There's, we're, we're using this as, uh, was it, as a synecdoche for, for the state of the U.S.? But the, the, the whole state of the protest, the way that um, defund the police was taken at face value and, and then propped up, all those things that are just madness that leave you baffled what is going on. You know what? Give a hearing to the to who, what's the name of the author who wrote the book in defense of looting or whatever. Oh my God! Give her a hearing, but also give a hearing to the person saying this is fucking ridiculous. This, this is, is bubble fuck so. lunacy. And but but they wouldn't, and that's that's well, the that's I'll, a dereliction. I'll give you an example. But before I get to the example, I will tell you I listened. Uh, yesterday and today to um, David Remnick interviewing someone, a Swedish professor uh, who wrote a book called like, um, you know, why activists should blow up the pipelines or something like that. I can't remember the name of it. And I was listening to this and I was walking down Delancey. I thought my head was going to blow off my body. And I thought the same thing that you did. I was like, give this person a hearing. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we want to hear what people are saying and why. But his ideas were so much, again, of destroy, 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 in order to, that's going to be the solution. <laughs> I was like, right. okay. Um, I'll give, okay, let's get back to the times. Which Who doesn't actually, love wastelands? Yeah, right. And, and, and here's another thing. When you start saying you're going to blow up pipelines, and he's like, oh, I, I had this, okay, so I'll go back. Okay, I have three more things to say here, right? Um. <laughs> When I was talking about the violence in I Portland, I envy your memory. The violence in Portland, um, I had—I I have no idea how many people come back to me and said there was no violence in Portland. There was no violence. There was vandalism. Violence is only against people. What you saw in Portland was vandalism, and vandalism is legit and okay because no one was hurt. I'm like, okay, well, you know, if that is that your that's your out now, right? But in any case... But words are violence. Yes, so, that's right. So bad tweets that's right. are the real violence. That's right. So I was listening to this Swedish guy today, and he's like, well, what we have to do with the violence, and not the violence, what we have to do is, uh, you know, when we blow this up, but, you know, of course, <laughs> of course, you're not going to hurt any people. I'm like, oh, because that's the way that works, right? <laughs> when you blow things up, there's never a chance that someone is hurt, correct? And then if someone is hurt, does it become another instance of, well, you know, got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Did he say it, that? No, oh. but that is, but that I, will t I will almost fucking guarantee you, you start blowing up pipelines, you're going to kill someone. That That's, I mean, this is, to think that you're not going to. By the way, there are several. There's, it's going to be a hierarchy until it reaches the the someone where it's going to count as an egg. Because first, it's going to be you know the, just a worker, the, 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 the worker who operates yeah. it, and he's is culpable. So that's fine. That's part of vandalism. Then it's going to be maybe the security guard, but that's part of the police, and of course that can go. So only when it reaches the the bystander, we'll see. I was going to say it could be a, 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 an endangered animal that lives around it. That would probably take it up, take them off. So I'm going to tie in the other part. We're talking about, you know, the times. You know, people like to pick heroes, right? People are simplistic. They want to see a good guy and a bad guy. I'm not saying the times does this all the time. They don't. But I think in terms of the story, what was going on in Portland, they did very often. So I have a friend, Nellie Bowles. She's uh, Barry Weiss's wife. She's a good friend. She was going out to Portland. And, you know, I'd been reporting 
And she's like, do you know some people? I, I want to go talk to some people. I was like, you should really go talk to um, my friends over in this one area. There was this thing. I gave her an instance of something that happened. I gave her some contacts. Turned out great for her. She wrote the story, which was very much a story I was actually going to write, but that's fine. <laughs> no, it, it actually, I've written it in different ways. I'm teasing. Um, it was a great story. It got, it really was kind of a story I'd write. You go into a community, you talk about what happened, you talk to the people that it, it, that it affected, you talk to some of the activists, maybe what they feel about it. This is the way you report a story. She was vilified from inside the building, right? Because the certain activist class at the Times, I mean, for other reasons, of course, there's jealousy at the Times. We can talk about Donald McNeil until my, my eyeballs fall out. I have so many opinions about that. But um, just for context, if somebody doesn't recognize him by name, that's the New York Times. Was he a science reporter? He had been at the paper for 45 years, 45 years and got fired because a report. Well, what was it? For several, a trip that a year before, several years, years before, earlier, several years earlier. He apparently used the N word. He in, repeated it. Uh, 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 a student on a trip. Uh, had said it, and he repeated it back. And it was in a context of debating whether or not it's legitimate to use the word in certain contexts. Well, it was something like it, she was talking about a friend of hers that had used it, and how did he feel about that? And and he said, well, did did she say the N word? And he repeated back what she in the you know was it a quote from a song, a book, blah blah blah. blah, blah. Well, he you know some parents apparently got mad at it the following year, and then the Times called him in, and he said, well, they're like, well, whatever, let it go. But the f year after that after he'd been the star reporter on COVID, after mm -hmm. he was being put up for a Pulitzer, after now he was the nice fancy. Oh, some people, kind of activist contingent within the Times, they wanted to relitigate that, but how did they do it? They called up or someone, and I do not have, I do not, okay. Actually, I don't think I can make this claim. Let's just say somehow a couple of reporters at the Daily Beast got some inside information from the Times and basically accused him in bold type of being a racist. And the story, it just, it, it set on fire. And then there were some other instances of- uh, And ju just to, to unpack the insanity of that story. First of all, it assumes, to, to work on any level, it assumes that just having uttered that, that incantation is tantamount to racism, right? That, that magical word, that's just, that just having that said that. magical word. That <laughs> just <laughs> use an imprecation, that's it. That's it, you're... Uh, well, and, and of course it wasn't that at two all. Two more times and you've summoned Candyman, that's it. I, I mean, I, I have written, if, you, if anybody's interested, you can go on the Paloma Media YouTube channel. I've done four or five uh, episodes on it. I wrote about it for Newsweek. I wrote a very, very long piece that I'd be very happy if people want to read uh, in the dispatch about it. Um, it was, in my opinion, it was people inside the building that for whatever their ambitions are, they wanted to get rid of Donald McNeil. Of course. So that, that, that was where I was going with this. So the, first of all, the, there's a bullshit assumption there that requires some, some, some social acceptance that it, we can all agree that we that we can all agree to pretend that we care that much about how the, 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 that little incident. So, but we have the excuse that this word is a, of a unique status. Okay, fine. There's that. But then you have the idea that for that, the career of somebody who's worked for 40 years, clearly had no bad, bad intention, is, is, is forfeit. And that is just a whole other... It's, it's so nakedly 
had nothing to do with with the the politics or the social context and everything to do with just the pathetic emaciated state of news media in the US and elites internecine fighting cowardice from the top but just you know and mendacity and professional climbing like the uh, ladder yes. climbing uh, and, the and, and and here's okay so two things one you know the, you had Dean Baquet who's the you know executive editor editor chief whatever he is uh, basically during this whole instance coming out and saying you know well yeah you know McNeil has to leave and uh Context. After he said he doesn't need well, to he didn't changing okay. his mind. He, he said context doesn't matter. Like, no matter how this word was used, context is. And it's like every single news person I knew was like, excuse me? What the fuck are we doing here then? Why don't I just throw a bunch of fucking words in a bag and dump <laughs> them on your goddamn doorstep? Context doesn't matter, right? Nothing matters. It. I'm sorry. I, it was so, it, it was so insane. Then, of course, he backtracked. There's the whole inside story. And this is, this is also, before we go, go there, like it's just just to dwell. And by the way, the reason I dwell on all these like meta points, because one of the reasons that I, I thought this I could have fun insane. with you, <laughs> is for, aside for it just being like batshit, is a look for an excuse to have like a kind of a, I don't want to say high level because that sounds sophisticated, but yeah, we are just like definitely a, low, not a really like low brow conversation of, of media. And I thought you were a good partner. Just uh, I wanted to dwell on that point. <laughs> there are so many brackets within brackets. Um, but no, but the, the, um, what, were you, what you said, the context, just how crazy it is for a journalist to say that after during the, the uh, after Trump election and when there was a whole triumphal chest thumping pride of democracy dies in darkness, it takes a journalist to find the truth, then Apple is not a banana, et cetera, et cetera. They one of the things that they celebrated is we we are we bring context like <laughs> Trump is a master of prevaricating and saying things that are technically true but they lied the context that was a line that was pushed by the Times by the Post the this is the reason you need us this is the reason that you need to sign up to our subscription right now before journalism fucking dies and it's all it's all true until the singularity of the N word at which point context just evaporates. But, but the N word was an excuse. It was of an, course, ex- of it was course. an excuse. Of course, of course. So, so my point is nothing my, matters. Nothing means anything. I grew concerned. Well, first of all, just to say, in terms of Nellie Bowles, they you know she was getting the same sort of attitude, and things were getting more and more uncomfortable for the kind of reporting that she was doing, which I see as very balanced reporting. Uh, she just left the paper. After what, 10 years, she just left. You know, she's like, has better things to do. If you can't write, if you can't write the stories you're finding, then why are, I don't want, I don't want to be there. Like you can't, you can't write for a public. I have had so many, I, I ran a clubhouse for a while on policing and I had a lot of people or actually um, some public information officers say to me, do you have your publications ask you to report stories in certain ways? Because they certainly had dealt with journalists that had to do that. Like they needed Mm. to get the clicks. I think I was like, never. And I would never work for a place that asked me to slant a story. Oh, could you make it a little more, you know? I mean, obviously if I haven't done my reporting right or if we want to highlight something, of course, that's called editing. But in terms of having a slant, what what really does concern me, let's say at the Times, is um, if this is the way certain people at that paper or any paper or any institution think is the way to get ahead. It's sort of like 
there was that game when we were kids, um, shoots and ladders. It's like you have to right. go around the board, but sometimes whoop, you can just like <laughs> take a shortcut. Well, if if the shortcut is proving successful, what you exactly. you, you maybe your maybe your Pulitzer is being called into question. Uh, but in this other guy, you don't maybe want him to get his Pulitzer. Well, maybe we can just get rid of him and we can just do it super quick. And these things happen. You know, these things happen quickly. And I I grow very concerned at how and and how people see that as legitimate. They see that as, as this or maybe the legitimate way to get ahead is to get rid of people that you don't like. I think this is this is criminal. The brilliant thing about it is that they 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 found and I don't want to make it sound as if somebody was plotting it out intentionally, but it's at this point an unacknowledged collective understanding of what the path to professional promotion is these days. You know, in the past to promote yourself, you needed to do some research. You needed to figure out who was sleeping with whom and then leverage that, you know, do all that sleaze. You know, now you're promoting justice while promoting yourself. This is beautiful. It's synergy. It's a win-win. You advance professionally and society becomes more righteous. And I'm sure that at least a majority of these people who are involved in these ad hoc mobs believe that they that they re- that they are serving some higher good in doing so while obviously the reason their heart is thumping so loudly isn't because they're saving the world but because they can see the big prize waiting for them i i think it's a couple of things you know there's that phrase like the way you live your days is the way you live your life if they are if this is the world that they're creating i'm not sure how they expect that to be a beautiful world right. or a world that won't eat them eventually. And they've, they've created it. I also definitely, I feel quite strongly that people become addicted to the destruction of others and they begin to look for the next snack, the next rage calorie. I think I used that, that phrase with you one other time, Adam. You know, what is the next thing? I saw it in Portland. You know, first it was Trump, then it was the police, then it was the feds. Then it was the landlord. Then it was the DA. Then it was the mayor. Then it was it was your professor. It, it, they become. I mean, I think in order to constantly feel emboldened and right without doing any actual work, you just need to like you. You need to defeat a series of of people that aren't even in your enemies. Um, I, if, if this is the world they're creating, you know, God help them. Well, you were also alluding to a, another backstory before. You no, know, I think we've seen this with other, probably with other uh, journal sets. I mean, we saw it with you know Alison Roman, who I adore, uh, who was. I, I don't know. Exa- I don't want to get the specifics of her story wrong, but let's just say, as we all know, it's very, very easy to drum people out of decades-long careers now in a matter of days, um, uh, without evidence. Without evidence. Oh, sorry. They're paid more, so the executives are more than happy to see their mm-hmm. careers tossed. That it's 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 a it's a boon for the company because they. Oh, need- that's that's an interesting point. If people want to if people want to follow me on Twitter, I'm Nancy Rom N A N C Y R O M M, and I pinned a tweet up there last week. It's a two minute video of Matt Welch and I in our in Paloma Media Studio. And I'm going to leave it there for a while, and it basically encapsulates a lot of what we're talking about, and in terms of how I think it's actually impossible to create a 
better and sweet world from all this bitterness. I, I just, I think it's, it's like, it's, I said to someone the other day, it's like trying to make a blueberry pie from turds. Hmm. Like you just, you just can't do it. So mm. let's see uh, what world they think that they're creating. And at some point, maybe they think that that's not the world. That they- and then also, and then I'll, I'll shut up for a second because <laughs> Vanessa hasn't said one word here. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, this is not the whole world. There's plenty of us that don't operate, I mean, under these, uh, I mean, we kind of do operate under these conditions, but we kind of also don't because we create our own stuff, our own podcasts, our own media companies. We write for publications where that shit don't fly. So, you know, it's not the whole world. You know, sometimes we think it is because we were Twitter addicts, but it's really not. Most people don't give a crap about this, um, though they may not know how much it might be um, if infecting their, their world. Right, no, and, and that's why I keep going back to why, why this thing matters. And this is something that Vanessa and I sometimes discuss because Vanessa comes from a very different perspective than mine on, uh, on all of this, and she'll... Uh, express that in a second for herself but i i often feel the need to explain why i am so angry about these things and that's why i started by separating for instance the 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 general twitter mob which i find depressing for its own right because this is the way that so many people do communicate right now and it it is harming people's perception of the world but that's not the thing that primarily bothers me but institutions like the times still have clout internationally still have um, uh, and, and i think part of my perspective is as an international um uh, as, as an as i don't know if i'm an expat or an impat or whatever i am impat. um <laughs> but as somebody who's not immediately readily or accently american i the, the very clear idea of how the, the the impression that cnn and the new york times still evoke around the world and how their reporting is taken for gospel. And when they drop the ball, it, it, it cascades. So either we get inaccuracies being taken for fact around the world, or, or we have just a loss of trust in, in American media institutions, both of which, in my view, are bad outcomes. But um, I'll shut up. <laughs> no, I, th- I think... I mean, so Adam and I have this uh, problem where we, our tagline of our podcast is supposedly um, everything is broken. Now what? And we have mm-hmm. a tendency to just sit in, in and wallow part. in the yep. broken and not actually think about the now what? And I think a lot of what you've been saying about this tendency to just to want to destroy without uh, some sort of vision or hypothesis or action plan for what do we build next? I think is the thing that for me is the thing that makes me most pause and be reflective. I don't, I don't get instinctively angry in the way that Adam and you probably do when someone gets fired from their job. I'm like, Oh, that's a bummer, but it doesn't like like keep me up at night in the way I know it does for Adam. Um, But this idea of like, what are we building towards in this uh, kind of growing fireball of, of destruction. I think when we talked to Rebecca Henderson with like the, um, the capitalism, uh, end of capitalism book, she wrote this book. Um, and her mm, point was that we don't need to destroy capitalism. We can work with it within right. the system to create like better the world. Right. right. Make it better. Right. Make it yeah. better. And it makes me think a lot. So what, one of the things that I do it's a lot of reporting sexy. on is, um, developing real estate development. So literally building new things. It is incredibly hard to build new things. The dynamics at play are that either if you don't do 100% affordable housing, you they don't you don't want it 
is like a lo- one contingent of the community. And then another contingent will be like, well, I don't care. Make it all luxury, but I just don't make sure, make sure the shadows don't go on my mm-hmm. property or whatever. Um, and there's no, there's just like no middle ground for like, how do, how can we come together to get some affordable housing, which would help towards the people in your side of the community? And how do we, you know, get some luxury so that it offsets and makes the, pe- the project pencil. And so there's all these conversations where it's like, at the end of the day, it almost feels like they'd rather have nothing but have their principles than to create something <laughs> that would they're tasty. <laughs> well, this is, this is like where we find ourselves, right? Like how do we, how do we find some sort of way to actually build something together as opposed to just sticking in our corners and hope and, and well, maybe the, maybe the, uh, the little catch there is together. Mm. I mean, you know, I see so many people building things. I live in mm. Chinatown and, you know, there's pandemic and it's doom and gloom and doom and gloom and doom and gloom. <laughs> the post uh, asked me, I was one of some people that were writing about like, write about the ghost town that is New York, <laughs> right? This was in the spring. And I was like, well, how about if I write about Chinatown with this shit is popping? Mm. Okay. It is popping. Is all of it going to like slay? No, of course not. But you know what? People are creating things. Um, I mean, we're creating something. We're creating a new media outlet. Is it going to be incredible? I don't know. But it's going to be hopefully fun and interesting. And nobody's giving us permission to do it. And I'm not waiting for somebody to tell me that, you know, we can all do this together. Mm. I'm going to bring my little piece of pie to the party. And, you know, you guys, you're going to bring your little piece. Right? We're doing it right now. You know, you're just creating something and that adds to the world. Maybe six people listen to it. And they're like, oh, I think that's kind of cool. I mean, that's what I want to do. And I think it's, it's, I know it's completely doable. You know, you don't need to, you know, have your board of directors with 20 people and $15 million. You really don't. I mean, you've, you've, how long have we known each other? Four months. And in that time, I built a freaking studio. I mean, it's like, it's rolling for really very little. So, you know, maybe we don't all work together. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no matter what the the Democrats and the Republicans tell us we're supposed to be doing here. Um, but we bring this individual stuff and make little shiny constellations and, you know. You're so Matt Welshy. It, yeah, it's funny. He and I kind of get along. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. Sing songs together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's just, uh, the, this is the, where when we had him on, I, it's just the point where we keep kept getting stuck, him and I. It, it, <laughs> he said he was so sunny and you were like, no. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. It's like, yeah, I'm an individual. Like, you're like ah, yeah, I come on your podcast. I come on other people's podcasts. We're, we're talking and we're spreading the word. So who, who gives a fuck? It's like, <laughs> uh, like, uh, honestly, for me, I think it's just the result of growing up at the outskirts of the empire. And then... At a later age, we're moving into Rome to see the empire collapsing. Mm-hmm. And also, in the back of my mind, realizing how it's going to affect the rest of the world. Because I guess locally, that's true. It's like, who gives a fuck? Like, I don't need to w- worry about what's happening in, in Texas with voting rights and, and abortion. Or I don't need to worry about what happens in Portland with crazy LARPers burning down City Hall. I could just do my own thing here and then go out and have my my little Vietnamese dinner and the restaurant next door. But you're really not. You really are caring about those things. You're talking to Peter Meyer and you're talking to me and you're bringing it to the people. I mean, you know, we can't, I, I can't, I mean, God, if you tried to care about everything, you lose your mind or get like super depressed, but you care about I your, can do that. 
You what? I can do both. <laughs> okay. Well, I can't. Like, I can do like two things, right? I can bake and write. And, like, that's all I can do. And so. No, de- depression and losing my mind. That's the. Are you good? Are you your expert? Um, yeah, I, I feel like very positive about it all. <laughs> I mean, I, but I definitely can get super mad. Like, I, I, I'm still mad about the Donald McNeil thing. I'm, mm. I'm, 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 so why did that one hit? Why did that one hit you harder? Because it was so incredibly bald. It was so clear what was going on. And we also unwatched it roll. Like we knew like the day it kind of started, started doing some research on it, had people talking to me from, you know, inside the building or people that had left. But everybody, it wasn't like, it was like, I mean, everybody just, it was like, this was so incredibly bald. And we saw it roll out very quickly. We saw Time's leadership collapse. We saw them absolutely be clown and basically befoul themselves. And we saw this activist contingent with absolutely garbage claims that they wanted a personal apology from Donald McNeil. And they also wanted the whole thing relitigated, including, and she said she didn't do it. Uh, so I, I can't say it was said um, that Nicole Hannah-Jones basically said, I'll start calling the parents of the kids. I'll start getting their stories. This is two and a half years later for something that the Times had already put to bed. She also did not do a very good thing when she was contacted uh, and, and basically doxed that one reporter. Yeah, yeah. And I wrote, that's the piece I wrote for the dispatch. And um, it's beautifully written, by the way. Oh, thank it's you. It's just like the scene, thank you. the dynamic. It's, I, love I that thought scene. that that piece was, it was actually a really interesting piece to write with some calm because there was like a little distance. I, I don't know when I wrote that, I guess in February or March, it, it had some distance and um, could kind of let people have their say and just roll it out. And again, what, what I, I really like the reader to just decide for him or herself and uh, I think the players were pretty clear uh, <laughs> on what they were doing there. Context: The story is about a, a reporter from the um, Beacon, free, yeah, right, the version of Free Beacon, who was doing some reporting following the was it after it was after the firing, right? That yeah. He, yeah. Or after the firing of McNeil, he started checking out whether there were other provocative statements, um, specifically use of the N words, done by other New York Times authors, and um, over the past years, and he had, he had year, found a bunch, including Nicole Hannah Jones, right? And so and, he and asked he, her. He asked her about this, as a reporter does, and sent her a DM and. And, and rather than respond to him or block him or whatever or refuse um, to give a comment, she she I think screenshot it or just yeah. re- and, and wrote about it and, and basically doxed him. His, Effect, fo- his phone number. Give his there. phone number, and he was getting like like hate calls yeah. uh, while for... he was trying to play his new video game at his par- at his parents. <laughs> I mean, he's a young he's a young guy. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. If you're working for the Washington Free Beacon, you're not making a lot of money. And he's I think he's like 23 or something. So yeah, you yeah. know, it's you know. So um, and uh, it was. But, but, Interesting story. By the way, my one of my partners from media company that I created that has turned me as jaded as I am now uh, <laughs> was originally the uh, uh, managing editor of the Beacon. Just uh-huh. for context, Aaron Sabarium is his name. Uh, just of, in case you, people want to call of the reporter. Yeah. Yep. Beauty. Let's talk a little bit about beauty. Oh, that's oh. so funny! Isn't this how this all started? Yeah. Yeah. Let's yeah, just say, how... let's let's jump tracks, dude. Let's <laughs> uh, jump tracks. We had an interesting conversation. So, yeah, 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 we were, we were on the drunk. subway back, back when you were still drinking. Yeah, we yeah, were both drunk <laughs> on the subway. On the subway, kind of drunk after uh, after um, 
we had a very nice dinner. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and uh, we were on the subway coming back from uh, Bacha's, Bacha. and um, we started talking about beauty. And I started talking about beauty as a commodity. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why something had happened. And it, and you were talking about how you and your mother had a lot of conversations. Yeah, about yeah. Beauty. So beauty is just something that always is uh, fascinates me because my mom. One of her, uh, she's a musician and a, and a, a writer, and we always talked about from like a very young age about how, I mean, talked about, I would respond, but it was her um, um, leading the way about the, 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 the power of beauty, both as a commodity and as a, I guess, a social force. Mm. She was keenly aware of how she was using her own beauty as a teenager, how how much authority and power it gave her. And she was a straight A student, but she was reflecting about how insignificant the power of her intelligence was compared to her beauty and the power it gave her to manipulate her environment. But she was also very much aware of the clock that was taking over that power. And I guess that connects to her... uh, an obsession that we we share and i guess maybe it's in our genes that at least the jewish part of the family is notoriously obsessed with death this we we start thinking about death from when we were three from birth Um, (laughs) so she very early on started thinking about the how how, that's gonna vanish soon she was all Mm. clocking the the time until until that power vanishes and how at that point the power dynamic is gonna flip and then no, all the work that I have done will mean not like that. No, what? And 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 that's a and you know she's it's going to become a whole other game. And she's she's constantly thinking about this even today. Like she's a admired and respected musician and author in Israel. But if she goes out to a bar, she feels invisible. And if she's like, sure, 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 people are going to give her the. Not of courtesy of a familiar face or somebody whose whose work has has garnered some some accolades over the years, but that sexual tension that 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 you know makes life exciting and worth living that that may that, that, that affirms that you exist that you're a thing that power is missing. And when I'm saying sexual tension, I obviously don't just mean the the carnal urge of I want to fuck you right now. Right. The erotic charge. The erotic charge that makes every intellectual discussion more worthwhile. And that in that sense, she feels that she has become totally invisible. She will sit there and the conversation will just happen around her. And sometimes they will ask for her opinion. But as they do, they will look past her to the um, hot girl, the hot 20-year-old behind her. So that's that's been her, her fixation, I think, all her life. And I... Growing up uh, uh, around her, I, I realized how dishonest we are as a society talking about this. With the, the, that aspect, that power and that decline is something that we d- never deal with honestly, I feel, in, in, in popular art, in conversation, in journalism. Like it's, it's, especially now where we're suddenly giving so much room for more abstract concept uh, like uh, versions of power when power is not just what laws you pass but also what what legacy you've created and what ideas you have running in your mind even in terminology you're using that you're not necessarily aware of its origin that's part of the idea of critical theory you have so many words and concepts in your mind that you did not necessarily put in there yourself 
we are still failing to to address that aspect of I think human existence. And I and I, when you said beauty is a commodity, I think it just brought all of that <laughs> on uh, the F train or whatever. Yeah, we're on the on. F train yeah. in a second. <laughs> all the best conversations are on the F train. Apropos the F train. So <laughs> what do you think about that? Um, that's interesting because you just hijack the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I've, I've, I know this story a little bit. I know um, Adam's mom a little bit, who does happen to be a very beautiful person. Um, and I met her, I guess, past her peak uh, prowess, I guess, according to her own definition. Um, I think for, for me, it, I was probably the opposite as a young person. I was very... You're still a young person by here. As a younger yeah. person, let's say. <laughs> I'm saying like teens, teens age. Um I was very afraid of being sexually recognized. And because I was one of the smarter people in the school, I did it. I went to like great pains to kind of like hide my body and wear big sweaters um, so that people would be forced to interact with me as a, as an intellect and not mm -hmm. as a person in a body. And it wasn't until years later that I could start to access some of that power. Um, but I would say it's always been kind of, a fraught thing that I don't like to acknowledge is true, even though I, I saw the difference between the way people reacted to me when I was hidden physically mm -hmm. versus when I was well-dressed, put together, um, took care of my body. And there was, there was a, a tangible change in the way that people talk to, talk to me. But I do think it's hard for me to disentangle that from the confidence that I myself had at that point in my life being older. Um, but I do, I, I mean, I would agree that it, it is a thing, it's real, but I also think it doesn't have to be the, <laughs> the, the defining same, quality. The same quality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And probably shouldn't be. Right. Nancy? I think there is a time uh, in a young woman's life when she's, I don't know, 13, 14, 15, when you all of a sudden realize people are responding to you in ways that are interesting i like you you don't really get it completely at first and you know some of it's kind of gross of course <laughs> like the dads it's like ew um and then of course you you play with it you try it out it's like wow if i if i kind of like my make my eyes a little squinty at this guy he's gonna like Argh. he's gonna like have the like what do we call it? like the gaga what is it like what did i call it with my daughter walking with her I was walking with her. She was like 14. And she, we were really, she's really tan. She had on these shorts. We were coming and this guy was walking toward us. And I literally saw his brain completely <laughs> scramble. And I was, we, so we call it the brain scramble. And you just like, you, it, it happens. Like you, and here's the thing. Like we do not know this guy. We were walking past each other in an airport. He didn't want anything from her. She didn't want anything from him. They were not going to have any particular exchange. She was not trying to do anything. This was an absolutely sort of biochemical emotional reaction. He just kind of went like, and, and we we walked past him and I was like, we just started to laugh a little bit because there was nothing that, I don't think there was anything he could do about that. There's nothing she could do about it. It's just sort of something that we respond as humans. Why do humans respond to beauty? What is beauty? Well, someone will say, well, how can you say what beauty is? Well, I can't because we're not going to all think the same thing as beauty. Most of us think our children are beautiful, you know. Um, I think youth in a certain, I remember like being a kid and 
you know, like you think you're ugly or you think, oh my God, that boy is so ugly. And then like 20 years later, you see a picture of him in the yearbook and like, he's beautiful. Like youth happens to be beautiful. I, why? I remember when my daughter was maybe 10 and she said to me, mama, why do people get ugly when they get old? And oh. I said, well, maybe it's because like, we're not really supposed to procreate at that age. So like, I don't know, we have less appeal to the opposite side. I don't know. We, you know, we do, we fall apart. We're like, a, you buy a toaster. It's beautiful. 50 years later, the toaster, it's okay. <laughs> it still makes toast. Um, at some point it becomes vintage though. Yeah. Um, beauty is, is I have, I, I've seen it in myself. I've seen it with my daughter and her friends. I've seen other people. It is a commodity. Can it be used for well, for good and ill? Of course, just like anything else. You can use your car for good or for ill. Um, I think it would be a terrible predicament to, um, to have beauty be your only, uh, passport or your only ticket though I guess you could be like you know Heidi Klum and totally you know make that right. work I mean that's that's no, possible but, but the real funny thing is and I think that's that's where it's interesting to me and that's part of what we were talking about in the F train that that night oh many moons ago yeah at least four months was, um that the discomfort in acknowledging just how much it affects us it, that because of course we can all agree that this should not, I mean we've all seen the gazillion Disney movies that tell you beauty is not the thing that defines you and yet we know that you'll hear two people in in a debate making the same argument and one of them will will be the shimmering beauty and the other person will be like say me you will no, not listen to me you will listen to the the guy who or the girl or whoever exudes that erotic charisma well, there, but there's nothing that this person i mean you know you could put a bag over your head i mean there's nothing look people are packages of things right someone's tall someone's got these kind no, of no, no, hair no, no, no. you know that's, that's right but the thing is that the impact that these small obvious things have on us we, we keep trying because we still live i'm gonna over explain it and i think it's part of our modernist existence that we put so much emphasis uh, on rationalism and 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 theory and and our own ability to work things out through reason that we deny just how much impactful those other things really are. And again, my my point is coming from a world where we're talking about critical race theory and and how much our biases are can override our our, our rationality and even rationality itself is to some extent uh, subjugated to our our historical and linguistic biases. And part of it is bullshit and part of it is true. We're still not really ready to reckon with the social force of beauty. Like some of the hypocrisies that I sometimes see is like, um, I don't want to name names, but every once in a while I see, uh, you know, talking about oppression and all those like lefty ideals. <laughs> the lefty ideal of oppression. <laughs> the lefty ideal. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> Uh, but that's kind more of true, true right? than it's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in vino veritas but anyway you see the people who have become the faces of this debate the the media figures who will go on to explain the, the problem with privilege and the, the 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 danger of unexamined biases prejudices and social undercurrents 
and they tend to be beautiful, camera-ready, photogenic um, um, humans, and of, of both sexes, of both genders, or whatever. And, and you know that, to some extent, that's why they are the faces uh, of, of this discussion. And, and this avoidance, or discomfort with admitting that, is something be- between dishonest and craven. At least, seems to me. And I guess there's also the element that the, the, the people who are talking about privilege, etc., view gendered relations and sexuality as, as primarily socially constructed. And then the idea that it's, it's something so immediate, so inexorable, at least somewhat flies in the face of it being completely socially constructed. Well, okay, hold on a second. So completely supposed to be socially constructed by, 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 the, by, by the people who talk about by the 7,600 people that talk about this shit. Every fucking other person in the world is like, okay. This is bullshit. I don't want of to course. give them any more air. Okay, sure, okay. sure. Okay, I want to give an example, though. I want to talk about beauty for a second for someone we know. Okay. I think Bacha Angar Sargon, who is my editor at Newsweek, a friend, I think she is outstandingly beautiful. I mean, like, I like just such a knockout. But do you know what makes her scintillating? What makes her scintillating? It's her fucking brain. Mm-hmm. And it is her kindness. Like when I was, last time we had dinner there, I had been, I had been sick the week before and, and she came up to me. She's like, why, why didn't you call me? Like, like actually kind of pissed off <laughs> that I had not picked out like, well, cause I, she's like, Nancy. And also the way she writes and the way mm. she thinks and her, and her right, generosity. Right. She freaking sparkles. She's all of the Okay. Above. The whole package. Okay, this woman, yes, she's beautiful. And and she's not, I mean, I don't know how old is she, 38? I don't know how old Bach is. I mean, she's not like 23, like, no, mm-hmm. no, you know, but she's beautiful. And maybe, you know what? Okay, we don't appreciate that kind of stuff when we're 20. We don't, we don't see beauty packages the same way we do when we get older. But I, I got to tell you, I, I was talking again with my daughter, and she's young, but she has friends that are already, you know, in their 30s and they're using the the botox and yeah. this and the this that. This is a thing. It's that's a thing as as maintenance, right? And some <laughs> maintenance. Yeah, well that's what they this say. It's as maintenance. Common. And oh my, God. my daughter had a very good point the other day. She has a couple of friends. I've known these girls since they were teenagers. And she's like, "Well, so and so and so and so have always been comfortable in their bodies with who they are. They're doing things. They're beautiful, but they're like and they'll do like like the tiniest little bit every 6 months one gets like a little boop." in their head to whatever the line in the forehead. Two others, she's like, these two others have never been comfortable. And they're both beautiful girls, but they've never been comfortable. And now they're starting to, you know, to do all this stuff, which is really, if you think about it, it's like a zero sum game for everyone but the plastic surgeons. Because you want to look beautiful, <laughs> but you also are going to wind up looking like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Right. You're going to have the platypus lips and you're going to have the face that doesn't move and that anyway i uh beauty is something that exists in the world and you're right people don't talk about it because then it's like i don't know are you conceited or are you are you you have a leg up and you're not supposed to i mean does beauty open doors it does open doors this is this is undeniable but you gotta fucking perform when you get there that's that's how it is you're not gonna you might get a job I don't know, selling cosmetics 
because you're beautiful. No, of course, but of course. You've you got to perform, and no, then it's no, just like an extra thing. It's no, like, no, okay, it's not. It's never. You know? It's never. It's like I said. By, that's why I use my mom as an example. I, I don't think you can live I mean, again. Heidi Klum and people literally turn beauty into But they their also career. work their asses off. Their asses you know? off. Exactly, exactly. No, no, no. It's yeah. not it's not it's not the that it's not that illusion of like that's that's it. That's the one ticket. Right. No, no. I, I just think my fascination with it is not is hopefully is not as simplistic as that. It's just it's the fascination of it's it's a real fascinating power that exists and then vanishes. And ha and and that particular that, that particular moment where it is salient is something that is interesting i don't think it's bad i don't think it's good i don't think it's any, i think it's just it's just obvious but it's one of those obvious things that societally we're just we, it seems to be impolite to acknowledge yeah because it's because it's like not everybody has it like everybody could go out and buy but a nice thing, bmw but, right but, but not everybody can be tall not everybody can be but beautiful. That's the thing, but you'll talk, not, not everybody can be rich and not everybody can be white and, and, or but male. Like, but but we talk about male and privilege and we talk about, uh, we, obviously, wealth is a privilege and we talk about everything as a privilege. But beauty privilege is something that we just don't well, really look, acknowledge. And, and people try to, you know, look at, I mean, it's this massive industry, you know, to try and... To try, I, I, it's such no, a but great, we don't because the same industry that will talk about privileges will, will talk about how... You're beautiful. You're beautiful the way you are, and I think yeah, that's that's, that, that's why I'm so fascinated by this. That's interesting. I talk was talking to uh, someone the other day because you see a lot of body positivity mm -hmm. um, ads now. Great, fine, but it was there was something on the train. I don't remember what brand it was, and they were talking about like you know all bodies are beautiful and everything. That's fine, sure. I mean, that, I'm not in charge of what people think is beautiful or not, but I wonder. And they had some quite heavy set gals like you know not just not just a little round like quite quite large and i thought well there is the there is the health issue you know you do 300 pounds is probably not a great weight to be walking around if you're a gal or uh and also do you feel comfortable in your body i mean i think we all i like to feel comfortable in my build like i like to be able to walk outside and do this you want to go running you want to feel good that's a barometer for me and I wonder even if you tell people like, it's all good, you are perfect the way you are and should be, deserve love and respect 100%. But I wonder if that changes the way they feel. I don't know. There's this wonderful short story that I don't remember who wrote it, but I always loved it. And I think over the years, I learned to love it more about a guy who would wear like, a, like I think a mirror over like, is from he would have have a cap with a mirror so he can always see himself as he speaks talks to other people so he knows how he reacts to those people that's like oh my god that sounds like hell it's proto zoom it's what we do all the time now <laughs> oh yeah that is it is yeah, yes but, but but the insight there and i remember distinctly not really getting it the first time i read it but over which was like seventh grade or something and over the years, I started to really appreciate it because you don't immediately realize how happy some people make you and how miserable other people make you and how you respond to the way that they see you. And in the sense of you know, beauty positivity and all that, you can, you can tell people, you can try to tell people to feel good about themselves, but ultimately the thing that makes you feel good is when you see how, the way people look at you 
and you feel oh, like, and that's not just 100%, beauty. 100%. That you can't fake. And no, it's sometimes it's right. beauty, but sometimes it's because you said something smart or because you flirted the right way there are or because people that you had chemistry with the other person. There are people that make you glow. But you people, some people make you glow and some people make you shrivel and some people make <laughs> <Yeah>. you angry. <laughs> um, I have one little thing I read years ago. Uh, Dustin Hoffman, he was doing that movie Tootsie where he was dressed as a woman. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he was in hair and makeup for the movie and they did the whole thing and he looked at himself and, you know, the wig and the makeup and the clothes. And he said to the makeup guy and he's like, okay, great, great, great. Now make me pretty. And the guy was like, <laughs> that's not how it works. No, <laughs> no that's the after effects guys. <laughs> that's in post. Uh, it, that, that's it. That's I guess it. this is what we ask all our guests. Oh, yes. End. Uh, I'm glad you remembered the final question because yes. I had forgotten. See, that's why you need to drink more. Yes. <laughs> um, what do you see as the blind spots on the left and on the right? The biggest blind spots. Biggest blind spots. Uh, the most urgent blind spots. There was an interesting article uh, last week in The Atlantic, I believe, from Sally Sattel, talking about how the left um, does not see its own authoritarian tendencies, mm. whereas the right will sort of cop to its authoritarian. It's like, yeah, yeah, what's a big deal? Apparently someone was, I was listening to uh, something earlier today. It might've been fifth column. Um, Oh no, it was actually the reason round table. Anyway. um, Either way, Matt was there. Either way, Matt was there. Um, uh, I think the left has become very enamored with destroying people. Uh, I think that the obsession with race above everything all the time, everything is, um, I mean, is, is incomplete, if not benighted, sometimes benighted. Um, I think that they, I think a lot of people have lost their moral compass on, on both sides. When I'm listening to someone, when I'm listening to David Remnick of the New Yorker, kind of with a pretty calm face talk, talking to this guy about, you know, blowing up pipelines. I'm not saying he should not speak with him, but it was in a way, and I can give you an exact example. The guy was, he was saying to him like, well, you know, have you seen movements where violence have, has worked? You know, because we know historically in the sixties, you know, people were nonviolent. He's like, well, the guy was like, well, look at the summer, you know, after George Floyd, look at the violence in the, or not, again, vandalism, whatever, in this U.S., you know, that really, really, you know, was a big thing, had a big impact. And I'm thinking, did it? Like, like, I don't know what was built from that, but please go on. Instead, Remnick's like, well, but you know, now you know, you know, all those thousands and thousands of people, the vast, vast, vast majority was peaceful. And I'm like, okay, do we have to do this again? Do we have to walk this train again? So I think that I think that they think they're being really right and and solving things. I don't I don't see it. I think they're going I think they're going down a dead end. And I think a lot of people know that, but it is uh, infecting or impacting. But impacting is not a word, right? Apparently, if you say impacting, people are going to hate you and I'm and say that. that that is not a word. <laughs> um, so I didn't say it actually. I said something else. I meant my tooth impacting no um i think it is it's affecting um it's affecting institutions and that becomes problematic when everybody is terrified for their jobs or terrified of saying the wrong thing i think that is more on the left though some of that is also on the right 
And but what? How would you? Because we we believe in reductionism. How would you describe that? What is the the core problem there? Is it bloodlust? Is it ideological capture? Is it? I think they're afraid to look like they're not supportive. I think the vast majority. I think there are very few true believers of this particular moment. I think you have people afraid. And then they convince themselves that they will, you know, shout a little louder and then maybe they are really swept up in it. I mean, how do these how do authoritarian movements start? You know, does everybody you know, believe in it right away. It's like, oh, it just, you know, you know, Nazism is born, fully formed. No, it's not how it happens. You know, people, uh, it, it's slow, they get fooled, they get convinced. It's the, maybe it's not so bad after all. Well, oh God, I was reading a review in the Wall Street Journal today of a book and they were talking about in, in Poland, uh, what, what polls, in order to denounce or, you know, reveal where your Jewish neighbors were hiding, it got to the point where people would do it for a cup of sugar. You know, it, you know, it, it becomes, uh, it's like not such a big deal, right? Mm. Um, but there's a, there's a term in, in sustainability about this where like you keep getting acclimatized to the new norm and you no right. longer think it's urgent the anymore. The frog in the boiling water or yeah, the, I there's really, like a term for this. I remember reading or many, many, many years ago, a book on, on, uh, the Holocaust, and it was a professor. He was not Jewish, but he said, "You know, the the laws against Jews started, and it was like grass growing. Like you didn't see it. Like you you saw it, but you didn't really see it. And then it was over your head." Right. The problem on the right, um, I mean, I don't follow uh, the sort of allegiance to Trump that other people do in terms of reporting on it. But I know last week we had some pretty smart people that I admire writing about it. Andrew Sullivan was one. Um, I think David French might have mentioned it as well, that this is a real ground swell or, or a continuing swell. And um, they feel that, you know, he's going to get elected in 2024. I think, I think that's a problem. I think, I think it's a problem it's almost the same sort of problem um, in terms of uh, following this sort of authoritarianism. I mean, I, I, I'm no fan of Trump's. Um, and I also think he's such a, he's so transparently um, a manipulator that it, it, it kind of is frightening that people that you see that we've elected and put um, in positions of power would, um, readily feel whether they actually believe it, they've actually, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid, um, would be so, so fucking happy and eager to be manipulated. That's pretty scary. I also feel, and I have no, I haven't really investigated this because it's really not my beat. I feel like we're moving into a post-political, not post-political, everything's political in America, but like almost post-governmental hmm world here because we have Biden who seems like a vapor at this point. And I mean, I, I don't even know, it's like even, you know, where is Kamala Harris? It just feels so sort of vaporous right now. Like, um, and then Congress doesn't do anything. It just doesn't like, there are so few people that I have like any regard for 
I mean, Justin Amash was one and Peter Meyer is now, and, you know, he's probably not going to stay because why would you, you know? Anyway. Can I ask one tiny PS question about my hair? Well, your hair looks fantastic for the viewer, the viewers, for the listeners who can't see it. It is pink and great. Oh my God, I totally neglected my duties as designate. Yeah. I put a a tweet up. (laughs) There is a tweet. You can see it. Um, No, I'm just, I was very jealous at the very beginning. We were talking about your kind of, your origins of reporting and just kind of like going out doing the thing, talking to the people, talking to the whoever. Because I feel like my journey to journalism was very little of that comparatively. Um, and so I'm just curious if you have any like stories that have stuck with you of, uh, in the spirit of, of, of telling a story that you've probably told before. Oh my God. Are there I, any like characters you met and along the way in reporting? No, no, no. no. That, What's the story uh, of your formative journalistic years ooh. that you haven't told that you feel that is an important piece it never comes up. It's not, I wouldn't say it, it's formative. I've had so many interesting stories. I, I, I will say the one thing that I know about journalism is that you can never, ever pre-decide the story. First of all, this is totally illegitimate because then you're steering your story where you want it to go because that's the information you're looking for. But also people will surprise you. Oh my God, will they surprise you? Uh, I can give one example a uh, story wrote for the LA Weekly. There was a little tiny clip in the LA Times about this woman who was run over on the beach. She lost an eye. Her boyfriend at the time, it was like his legs were crushed. And um, run over by a car? They, they were sleeping on the beach, run over by a Jeep. They were kind of homeless. and But apparently, like, she was kind of known in the community. This was in Venice. And my, my editor at the Weekly just had like a nose for news. And she's like, just... I don't know. I think there's something here. Why don't you look into it? So I go and I find the woman. Her name is Nancy Safanov. She's in like a public rehabilitation with her eye out and she got this cackle and a few teeth. And it turns out she was an heiress, her, well, kind of an heiress. Her family had started like American Standard. Her father had been the president of American Standard, which makes toilets, all the toilets that you see, American Standard. She'd grown up and she'd married this guy at MIT. Anyway, and then her boyfriend was this guy. He had grown up like, he was a black dude. She was white. He was black. He'd grown up like super rough in LA and he was addicted to crack and she was an alcoholic. And I was like, oh, I know what this story is. It's white, black, booze, crack, right? How, how much cleaner could I get? Then I met her husband who would, they'd met when she was younger and he was at MIT and he was now at USC and he was a professor. And I sat with him in his office and he had never in his life talked about what had happened with her when she became an alcoholic and they had a young son. And it was like I lanced a boil that had been there for 20 years. And he was a very sort of uh, kind of like quiet professorial guy. He did not stop talking for an hour and 45 minutes. I just sat there. And I was taping it. And I got back to my car and I was actually shaking. And I said to my editor, I called her, I said, what I thought is not the story. The story is who she took with her. Mm. And then I met her son. I'm getting goosebumps telling you this story. It was, I never could have predicted this. And the only reason I got it is because I looked. 
I'm actually very pleased with that story. It's called Who She Took With Her. It's on my website, nancyrom.com. Um, I had something else happen recently. I wrote my book and I was contacted by a child that the woman who had committed the murder had adopted out when the child was a newborn. And she was contacting me in order to find out about her half siblings and the mother who had she been around and living with her might also have been thrown off the bridge. So these are things that if you pay attention and you're open to people telling you really sometimes the hardest things in their lives. I mean, for me, this is, this is just such an honor and a privilege and it can be, uh, hard, but like when I, when I find these stories, I'm like, I don't want to do anything else except build palomamedia.com, <laughs> which is coming within the month. So everybody should be on the lookout for that. Thank you, Nancy. Oh, guys, thanks for having me over. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are Uncertain Pod on the social media. And if you're feeling generous, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Please share us with your friends and enemies. And until next time, stay sane. When we started talking about Portland, you had uh, you gave a sigh and, and, and a repeated disclaimer of, here's the thing that I, yeah, yeah, it's the thing that I've said a million times before, which I relate to because I always feel a bit of guilt whenever I ask a question that I feel I kind of need to bring in my refrain on that topic. There's just a, something that I feel is true in so many, you know, um, uh, b- b- podcasts like ours or the, the media industry. There is so much content and we end up repeating ourselves a lot. How much do you hate that? When the media repeats itself or when I repeat myself? Both. You as part of the media. <laughs> um, I, it, like, for instance, the story I told about Jake and Matt, I've told yep. it like seven times, but it's true. It's like how I launched it. And these are, you know, I think. It's funny. I always say 17 as my that, generic number. I mean, I, I, because that's how, you know, people are interested in Portland and how did you get there? And I'm using these two people who are very smart and mm-hmm. they're news people. So I use it and I try to do the accent. Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes I, I do. I mean, I, I try to, I probably to a fault, I'll say, I've said this before. Cause I, I don't want someone to say, Hey, I heard <laughs> her say that before someplace else. Yeah, I don't have this compunction at all. I don't feel bad about this at all. I have no problem repeating my story because I know it's a good story. I've perfected oh, it. I've right. got the beats. Okay. I know where to end. I'm gonna, I'm, like, all right. Okay. Like, I know people are going to like it. It's like, you know, when people like look at you and make you feel good, it's like if I hit the beats right on this story, people are going to like it. Yeah. Yeah. Back when I was in Israel and was performing as a, uh, as a musician, I would be like, I would have my, my banter stories. And I know that some professional musicians have the same exact fucking banter story that they really like, like stand-up comedians yeah. are perfected to the pause. They know exactly when to yep. pause. And I oh, just, I couldn't, I couldn't remember. Like I, I remember specifically one was one of our biggest shows was packed and, um, Chen was taking off his shirt because he was so oh <laughs> excited. All those people. Um, <laughs> talk about youth. <laughs> exactly. Talk about youth. And, and I had a story and everybody was just laughing. And I had them and I, and I knew exactly how to recreate it. And I just, next show, I just, I just couldn't say this. I just, but, but it worked then. So why should, like, you know that I did it. You'll, they'll, they'll hold me accountable and then they'll come 
for me with like pitchforks for telling them the same story that they've already heard. So I obviously gave up on that. <laughs> Bothers me. So I related to to your disclaimers is what I'm saying.